0: Welcome to the men at work podcast episode number seven. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today we are talking to Tina Strelka. She is the CEO of Minerva BC. It's a super cool, not for profit organization based here in Vancouver. And they've got a real vision of shifting leadership to one that is more values-based and they are starting, no surprise, with women. So in our conversation, Tina and I talk a lot about how learning plays a huge role in organizational and system change, especially around gender diversity. We talk about differences between male and female role models for leadership, how we uh, value and socialize girls and boys, unconscious bias, forming relationships and sharing experiences, and radical transparency. This was an awesome in-person conversation with Tina. She's a wonderful, wonderful leader. And I know you're gonna take a lot out of this conversation. Let's jump into episode number seven. When Jen first introduced us, I said, like looking at Tina and you had this statement about you at the Fairmont and this, like this service pledge. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how do you go from Fairmont to running this you know super high impact women's leadership uh, nonprofit? So like, tell, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Well, my story, uh, Really, if you think about my story and and what influenced my career was growing up my whole life uh, having people tell me that I would do education and me rejecting that wholeheartedly I'm not going to be a teacher. Um, (laughs) Having the opportunity to go overseas in grade 11 to Germany, I did an exchange to Germany which changed my life. It was 16 years old and taking yourself completely out of your comfort zone. Did you speak Um, German at the time? Yeah, my heritage is German so I spoke a little, um, you know, reasonable but I did classes and I was immersed in that culture but I, I went away by myself to a foreign country. And my, my correspondence home was limited phone because it was expensive at the time. <laughs> That's uh, right,
0: when we used to care about long distance.
1: Letter writing. <laughs> uh, and then recorded tapes. Like, I actually recorded tapes with my friends, and we would talk to each other on the phones, and we'd mail these tapes back and forth. No way. So, you, and then, you know, in the age of today with texting and Facebook and all the ways we have to stay connected, it's hard to imagine, but at 16 to take yourself really out of your peer comfort zone. And that set me up for really kind of, I think, a bigger a bigger vision to um, challenge, opportunity, difference, uh, diversity. I I wouldn't have had that language at the time, but when I came back, I had a bigger worldview. And so that challenged me to always sort of take risks in different ways. And often that had to do with either travel or taking myself overseas. So I started um, university. I studied international relations. I was really keen to go overseas, change the world. So I looked at different programs. I did an international... Uh, volunteer project as a youth uh, sort of graduate out of university. I went to Guyana. Really? Yep. I worked on a couple of projects. One was a cataract screening project. One was uh, building a health center. So I was, you know, 20-year-old uh, university yeah. grad. And I came back recognizing that I was a catalyst for funding. So being overseas and, and meeting people and working in community They didn't need me to build a health centre. I'd never banged two nails together, right? Everyone there had built their own homes. But the youth from Canada, we had to fundraise to go. So it enabled us to provide the funds to make that project happen. So it shifted my perspective on, you know, sort of global needs and skills and, and where the work was needed. And I came home and I didn't quite know what to do, but I spoke different languages. I spoke German spoke a bit of Spanish, and so I fell into the hospitality tourism industry quite comfortably, uh, sort of working in a variety of contexts and landed in hotels. So I worked at the Fairmont. My time there was fantastic. It was really um, just a special time of learning and the kind of peers that you were with, but also the culture of the hotel was quite impactful. It was a family, and it was a really values-based organization in terms of we value the staff, we value the people who work there. And um, sort of building that culture of service, and I think that's where my leadership development started was really recognizing that service to others is part of being a leader. Sort of being accountable, being responsive, um, caring about others, listening to others—all those you know same skills that we use in counseling or sales or, you know, it is parenting. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. Is, is leadership, and that's that's where that was really foundational for me. Is you know never say no without providing an alternative, uh, always coming up with solutions. So. That was sort of seated in the hotel industry. Um, again, my passion for going overseas hadn't died, and I couldn't quite figure out how to get overseas, but an opportunity came through hotels. And so I took a job in Taiwan and packed up and packed my whole life away, broke up with my boyfriend and took off for Taiwan, a country I knew nothing about. Um, and off I went with a two-year contract to be a guest services manager in Taipei. Uh, and then that experience was also that putting myself out of my comfort zone, having to make my way in a world that was not familiar comfortable. That's
0: way out of comfort zone.
1: (laughs) Very out of comfort zone. And It (laughs) it took me six months to realize that people had personality conflicts at work, right? I'm in a bubble. I don't speak the language. I don't really pick up on culture cues. That
0: must have been crazy. You spent six months and all of a sudden you realize there's all this political turmoil.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally, totally. And it, it gave me that perspective of being an outsider. It gave me the perspective yeah. of being different. Um, I would stand on the street corner and people would look me up and down just out of curiosity. It wasn't it wasn't unkind. I In fact, I was so welcomed and accepted there. And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about unconscious bias and explicit and implicit bias. And I knew going over there that it was going to be uncomfortable. I didn't know anything about the culture. I knew I was putting myself probably right smack in the middle of my my own bias and areas of discomfort, um, and it changed my world because I I went and I made friends and I got to know people and I was treated so respectfully and so kindly and given every opportunity, um, that it really changed my perspective again on, you know, how to be in the world, how to be with people, how to be a leader, how to show up.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating though because that to me is like that would be so far out of my zone. I mean, I did an exchange and went to Quebec in grade 10 for six months or whatever it was. and That was frightening enough, but I spoke French and, you know, it was a very different situation. But, you, you know, you went to Germany, you traveled, you just pack up and leave for two years and go to a place where you don't even have, like, the basis of language.
1: No, truly not. <laughs> truly not. And the highs and lows of that. And I think, I think you learn so much about yourself. When you put yourself in those kind of challenging, uncomfortable situations, but you also give yourself opportunity to get to know others and let people help you and and those kind of things. So I learned a lot in my time there. I learned a lot about business and the labor market, uh, how things worked in the world. You know why people were coming to Taiwan and doing business. That's actually where I got a lot of sort of business acumen and understanding of you know how does the world fit together and you know, how does globalization work in terms of where people are traveling to do what kind of business and who's here. Um, And throughout my hotel career, I mean, it's interesting when I look back at my career, and I'm now leading a women's organization, I never took a women's studies course. I never sort of went that path. I never thought there were obstacles for me as a a young woman, as a young person in my career. My mother was a very strong career-oriented person who had a lot of strength and passion and commitment to her profession. I uh, always saw a lot of value in it, saw that that was, you know, how she could contribute to the world. So I grew up with strong role models around career. And yet I made choices all along the way to probably insert myself in more female-dominated environments. Yeah. And in hotels, I was surrounded by strong leaders, strong female leaders and, and role models, women um, and men who, who sort of contributed in different ways. But I recognized in my career I was shaped really by strong women leaders throughout my career.
0: How do you go from hospitality to leading Minerva?
1: So I came back from Taiwan. I made a conscious choice to come home. I'd been there three years. I extended my contract. And I, when I left, I had other opportunities, either to stay in Taipei, leave the hotel industry, I had a job offer in Australia. And I knew if I didn't, didn't come home to Canada, I would never come home. It was kind of that moment of <laughs> yeah. like, if you, if you go this direction, you'll become a career expat or you'll, you'll always be uh, someone who travels and work. And I could see that in myself. And I also knew that that's not, that's not what I wanted. I, I knew that Canada was sort of home and wanted to come back. So I came back. I really didn't know what to do. I'd invested five years in hotels. I didn't see a clear path uh, in that way. I was really interested in human development. I didn't have that language at the time, but I was interested in training, coaching, you know, so the human resources side of the work. Um, and I thought about doing an MBA, and so I considered that. I applied for an MBA studied, did all the all the work to apply, I got accepted to three schools, but each was quite different <laughs> in, in focus, so I'd applied to an MBA in tourism, an MBA in international business, and an MBA in entrepreneurial uh, skills. And Covered power. the whole gamut. So I, it was pretty clear. <laughs> My dad was like, um, I don't think you're clear. And I wasn't. You know, it was, a, it was a catalyst for change. I thought an MBA will help me figure out where to go next. So I put a pause on that. And I just said, okay, I'm going to look for a job somewhere. And then I found a job ad in the paper uh, for a small career uh, training and consulting company that wanted a career counselor. And I applied, and I got the job. And... Off, I went to work for Training Innovations, and I thought, "Oh, I'll do this for a year. It's kind of a cool gig, helping people with resumes and yeah. writing, and it's a, it's an entry point into that human development or HR side of things I wanted to do." And then 15 years later, I found myself still at Training Innovations, having built um, a lot of new skills and a lot of uh, expertise in different areas, and and a lot of it had to do with developing programming, adult education, supporting people to reconnect to the labor market. A lot of uh, career development and leadership work is the same. The self a knowledge, yeah. reflection, learning about, you know, your values and your strengths. Um, and so, yeah, so I found myself there after 15 years sort of leading the organization in partnership with the owner and then uh, really having a very... Um, Interesting time developing skills because it was a small organization, so you sort of get your hands in a lot of pots.
0: Yeah, you get to do it all.
1: Yeah, you get a, you, anything you're interested in, you can pretty well touch, right? Whether it's writing a proposal or running a program or facilitating. So I had a very uh, diverse experience there, and then things had changed contracting wise and sort of how we were doing business, and the organization had gotten to a certain level of maturity. And I really looked around the table and realized in myself. I loved my colleagues. I loved my, um, the owner of the company is my mentor. She taught me everything. We grew up together and of learned our leadership skills together. But we had we had stagnated as a team, as a leadership mm. team. We had known, I knew everything that everyone else knew. They knew what I knew. We weren't challenging each other. And, and I really felt like I was stalling out in my own development and learning. And that's a strong value of mine. And so I, I knew it was time. And so I was looking for opportunities. And then I saw this job ad for Minerva on Charity Village. And it was random I wasn't looking, I was doing something completely different, it popped up, and I thought, Minerva. And I had referred clients to Minerva when I started my career as an employment counsellor. Ah. I sent women to the programs and then had forgotten about it for years. And I was like, Minerva, what is this? And, and the job description just jumped out at me as sort of a great fit. So I applied for the programs director and then joined the team two and a half years ago. And then there was some transition on leadership, and I had the opportunity to apply for the CEO position, and here I am.
0: It's amazing, here you are and in your 20th, 20th year of the organization, too. You know, your story is, is so interesting. I think primarily because you're just open to the idea that, hey, let's see what happens. Let's pack up and go to Taipei for two or three years, or let's just go off to Germany and try these things, and let's all spend a year doing this job, and you spend 15. Um, and just to be open to that, I think is, it takes a lot of courage. You talked about at working in in hospitality. You said you were so shaped as a leader by these really strong female leaders, in particular. And now you find yourself at Minerva, leading a women's organization, in essence. So, how like is is there a t- is there a big link there for you between that? I mean, what's the what's the real drive behind you being at the helm at Minerva here?
1: That's a great question. When I think about what I care about and, and the themes in my career, um, I'm really motivated by change that comes from learning. Right. So if you think about how do you, how, like, how do you affect change in the world? How do you affect change in humans? How do you get someone who hasn't you know, worked? How do you get them to feel motivated about work and achieve that and be able to go to work? And I'm really fascinated by how learning plays a role in affecting change in people's lives. And so I think that's the underlying educational um, you know, training innovations to me was was a fantastic career experience and I probably could have stayed there easily forever working with the team that I did and the leaders that I did and, and kept doing that. Um, the opportunity to, to stretch and then think about how to take the lessons that I learned in those roles and apply them in a different context, uh, working with women, working with girls, looking at leadership, looking at... Um, how to advance women forward in an economic and instead sort of an economic and um, sort of career aspect. It still fit with a lot of the things I was doing at Training Innovations that I loved, which was really trying to solve the puzzle of how do we make space for everyone? How do you yeah. create space in the labor market? How, how do you help people find, you know, what they're meant to be and do and, and what's meaningful to them? And it's not the same definition. It's not linear. It's not one goal. Um, and I really have always believed that, you know, the way you show up and, and your own accountability and um, – how you want to be in the world, how you want to influence the world, there's there's a leader in everyone and it's stepping into that. And I the opportunity just to influence women and girls was the draw. I have two daughters, I grew up with three sisters and powerful mother. I've got, you know, lots of women in my life that I care about and you know, the opportunity to try and influence that and, and create spaces where girls can thrive was really uh, too good to pass up.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and and that's the great thing, the thing i that's interesting about Minerva. Like, I have I have two daughters as well. Um, I grew up with two sisters, but obviously I'm a man. Um, and so, and a strong mother. But the interest, this is, your focus on, not necessarily, you know, adolescent girls, but you're, you know, grade 11, you know, right through to end of career. And your programs run the gamut.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, and I, I just sent my daughter to the inspired by her conference in January, which was great. And I'm like, well, after that, you're, you're kind of into the Minerva programs at that point. So what's the, like, when you think about that, I, this idea of gender equality, how does that fit into all these programs you have? I mean, you have programs for high school students, you have emerging leaders, existing leaders, and then women who are, like, really end of career, contemplating retirement or serving on boards. How, so how does that all fit in?
1: Well, when we, think, when we think about sort of the bigger picture of gender equality or, or looking at how to sort of balance things out, there's two sides to that. There's the, the working with girls and women's side, so addressing the how do you step forward in systems and, and structures and workplaces where maybe we're not encouraged in the same way to step into leadership because leadership you know, is, is defined and looks certain ways that maybe values masculine traits more than feminine. So there, there is a role to play in helping uh, girls and women develop that leadership identity. There's really good research that, that suggests that for girls and women, their leadership identity is halted. So as they're coming through, as really? they're starting to develop, um, because they stop seeing themselves, right? If you think about 80% of men holding the majority of senior leadership roles or 80% of board seats, um, women don't see themselves and their style of leadership reflected in the world around them. And so when they're trying to figure out, well, what does this mean for me, there, there is an interruption where the encouragement and the role modeling and the seeing themselves and the representation aren't there. And so that has an impact where, where mem- women might opt out and say, oh, well, I'm not really that, so I must not be a leader. Or When we market our program for grade 11 girls, I, I had this conversation with a mom at an event once, and, and she said, this sounds fabulous. I'd love for my daughter to do it. And I said, well, you know, here it is. And she said, the only thing is that it's about leadership, and that will turn her off. Like, she really said, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, sort of encourage her to do this when she thinks it's leadership, because there's an idea of what a leader is and what a leader isn't. So a lot of what Minerva tries to do is break that down and really say, you know, you define what that means for you. And it's grounded in, you know, who you are, what's important to you, your values, your strengths. And then once you know that about yourself, you're clear on who am I and what do I care about? What am I good at then you can decide how you want to influence in your world and you can step up and be a leader because you've you've created what what that is and what that looks like and you have a pathway forward and it's about that purpose so I think there is a there is still a need to support women in that journey in developing those skills as well as other hard skills that are um, you know can hold women back with it it's negotiation or um, raising their hands stepping forward we know that, that behaviors of women uh, can also influence you know their their prospects and their progression through the workplace. So there's some of those skills that are um, good to learn. Um, and on the flip side, then if we think about gender equality and Minerva programming, the spectrum and, and at all ages and stages is is about, you know, trying to see where systems intersect with women along their whole life path uh, and how they're trying to navigate at different stages to what's important at them at the time.
0: Can you say more about this this idea about leadership identity being halted? Mm-hmm. for women or for girls because it's something that I, you, know, you hear about and mm-hmm. it, it makes total sense but like what's, what's behind that?
1: I think there's a lot of things behind it. I think a lot of it is our, our socialization and, and how we learn how to be in the world. Um, girls' behavior is encouraged and valued in different ways. There's a statistic I, I heard, um, I don't know the source unfortunately, but it, it, it suggested that by age six, girls don't think they're as valuable as boys huh and so i i think in the reading i've done and the research i've done factors and elements of girls being valued for appearance even when i became a new mom and and had two daughters um, someone said to me pay attention to how often you comment on what they wear and their appearance i still do it to this day that's a cute outfit you're wearing oh
0: yeah every morning i do that
1: yeah, but we don't do it okay. as often with boys. We don't, it's not that we don't ever do it with boys, but we don't do it as often. And we might say other things to, to boys. So, you know, girls learn pretty early on what's valued and what's important and, and appearance and sexualization, all those things, as part of that. Um, if we think about when you think what a traditional leader looks like, feels like, talks like, sounds like, even for myself, I in this role of CEO, if you had asked me, you know, five, seven years ago, do you think you'd ever hold a role like that? I would have said no.
0: Huh. Wow.
1: And there, there's, you know, there's um, all kind of anecdotal stats and things that, that suggest that, you know, a lot of women CEOs were told by others that that's Something they could do—it's in the realm of possibility. They had to hear it from external rather than internal. Yeah. Women apply for roles when they have, you know, 100% of the criteria, or 99% of the criteria, and men will apply when they have 50 or 60. So 30, we have, <laughs> we have different behaviors, and, and yeah. it's not—you know—it's not to say everyone's the same, and all men are the same, and women are the same. But women are rule followers. We're socialized to not create conflict. We're socialized not to rock the boat. We know that if we start to act out of expected gender roles, we're not as caring or as thoughtful, or we're not hosting the office birthday parties and baby showers yeah. <laughs> and we're acting in other ways that we will be called out for behaviors that are less than flattering. It's so that double bind of not being liked if we're aggressive, assertive negotiating yeah. positions. So there, I think there are the socializations, the expectations, and, and I don't even think consciously that we do it. I look at my career and I didn't consciously reject certain scenarios, but I did think that I didn't fit into business in a certain way. Or I didn't fit in leadership in a certain way because I thought well, you know, I'm not that kind of a leader.
0: This I think is a is a really important area. Is this idea of you know, as as you said it, you know, what's the role model for leadership and it? And in many cases it's a it's like a masculine version of leadership. So, not that women can't embody those traits, but what's going to feel as you said, you know, we're authentic or feel like you. And so if you have a woman who's in leadership who, who it naturally feels very, like, I you know, want to dominate and want to be aggressive, it's sort of great, fine. What if you don't? I think this is, this is an important area to dig. So what is it, when, when you're working through your programs with women, how do you delineate between this idea of the kind of masculine version of leadership and what, and they're like, I don't really think I want to be that. Can I still be a leader?
1: We do a lot of work up front in our women's leadership program, we do a lot of work up front on even just looking at leadership theory and how it's changed, right? So, I mean, early days of leadership theory, you know, there were ideas of the great man. And, you know, so we think about the constructs and how leadership has changed and what we value about leadership. I mean, there's no one definition of leadership. And it is a moving, evolving practice, and I think that's the beauty of it, is that what we value today and what we need today in leaders is different than what was needed, and I think what's great about that, what I what I caution is that we don't say, oh, all male leaders are and all female leaders are, because that's not true, and we know that there's as many men who don't want to be sort of those aggressive, assertive, you know, <laughs> sort of command and control type leaders as there are women, so it, it doesn't, one construct doesn't fit for our, fit our um, communities, doesn't fit people, and it doesn't fit the problems anymore. So we do a lot of work on theory, understanding sort of where these ideas of leadership comes from. We also ask um, participants to articulate what they value in leaders. So if you think about good leadership, great leadership, what have you seen that you value Value, and what are those traits and characteristics? And often they, they bring out the human side of leadership, the connection, the relationship, the humility, the ability to be curious, the ability to, you know, um, problem solve and be collaborative and so we see that coming out in preferences and we see in truth like the one leader can't hold the pressure of knowing all being all doing all you know being fearless risk taking always knowing the answer it's not possible for the complexity of problems we're trying to solve in our workplaces it's it's not one construct we need you know diversity we need many minds we need um, sort of interconnected ways where sometimes one person takes the lead and sometimes someone else takes the lead for good reasons. So yeah, we talk a lot about what that means and then helping helping people see for themselves what they value and what's important. And you know, there's also research that says that, you know, if there isn't decisiveness and decision making, that can also cause concern from a place. So everyone's different in terms of what they value and what they see as good leadership and what they need and what's important to them. And then as we're developing the women leaders we ask them you know and what's you know if you think about valuing that in leadership how are you going to step in and embody that or provide that or be that
0: so your training or your programs is, are about helping women understand that, that there are different many different versions of leadership and models for it and that their inherent values have a lot of worth then, it, let's, let's say they're, they're an emerging leader or they're early in career, you kind of put them out and in, back into the world. What about the structural part of this gender equality piece?
1: Well, I think there's two questions there. I think if you're speaking about an individual person, worker, employee, um, who's evaluating, is this organization a fit for me? Mm. Um, I just actually moderated a panel on the weekend. It was, we just restarted a new session, and, and there was a great quote from someone who said, maybe your organization's just not ready for you yet. And so we do um, have those conversations about, you know, assessing whether your values and what you need are complementary to the environment you're in and whether that is something that can be changed or, or not. On the other hand, I think we need to talk about organizations and what they're doing to uh, sort of break down some of those structures and, and uh, systems that create those barriers or those kind of exclusive environments. And that's where I think organizations who are starting to talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, bias. um, There's a huge drive in BC to be more diverse in companies to bring that inclusion. A lot of it is driven by talent. So the business case has to do with, you know, revenue, uh, market reputation, talent, um, and innovation. And so I think the talent and the innovation, particularly in the tech sector, you know, that's a huge driver for wanting to have a diverse workforce. But the act of then creating an environment and a culture that's inclusive and welcoming and accepting and creates space for difference, that's the work that needs to be done. And I think there are lots of organizations who are starting to tackle that, but it's not easy. It's, a not, it's not a simple, quick fix. kind of. It's culture change. Um, I think when I hear... You know, and I, and I read and I see kind of what the future work holds and, and the expectations of work and the expectations of employees and how next generations are coming forward with, you know, how they want to live and work and integrate their lives. And I do think, you know, really traditional, old school, super corporate male dominated kind of work structures won't stand the test of time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I, I just don't think they will attract the people and the employees uh, to continue in that way. So I think at some level we have to figure out how to break them down.
0: That's the I think one of one of the hardest parts, because despite all the awareness, right? There's a, well, I shouldn't say all the awareness, but let's say especially recently in the last couple of years, lots of awareness around the issue, and especially you know we I think the entry point is gender, and it obviously extends well beyond into diversity and inclusion for you know many different um, people, but the the unconscious bias, the you know, structural bias, all this, it we know about it. And we're we're still, and we know from the research, like you train someone on this, and you tell them about their biases, and you know, for me, it's like you tell me about all my gender biases, and I'm like, oh, I'm very aware of them, and I'm gonna still practice them every single day, because I don't think I, you know, I can't control that part of my brain. So, what more? What more is there? Is it just a matter of time, as you say, where you, know, you start to have generational shift, because this is. I mean, this conversation's been going on for a long time my mom was talking about it you know well before i was born and through my all upbringing and there's still you know, I talked to her about this podcast and she's like, yeah, it's well, not same a lot's stuff, changed.
1: Same stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah she's,
0: you know, she's retired now. So. It's
1: interesting because I, I do think it's a dialogue that's happened for a long time and it doesn't feel like things have changed. And yet I do think we're in a time where it's a lot more of a common conversation. And I think certainly the Me Too movement and, you know, things that have happened over the last several years have really, um, especially from a from a gender perspective, have, have put things to the forefront. I think... For organizations that are serious, I, what I see in, in organizations that seem committed and taking action and, and moving things forward, there's a very high level commitment. So top level. This is not an HR initiative out, you know, for middle management. It's, it's, sometimes it started from a grassroots initiative, but it really needs that top level engagement. And for that top level engagement to sustain, it needs to have the values piece. And then there's the business case, and a clear business case, not just, oh, this research report says X, but for our business, for our objectives, this is how this is going to help lead us forward. And the organizations that seem to have both seem to be moving things along. And and then you need to bring everyone on side. So everyone in the organization needs to understand it's a change management initiative. It's a culture change initiative. Yeah. So the same way that you would do anything else, you have to bring it into the organization and talk about it and talk about you know what's changing and what's good and what's bad. And... I think where it can get contentious, where especially if you think about gender and people say, "Oh, well, women are now surpassing men, and women are graduating more in university, and everything's for women, and women men are falling behind," and I think that's the kind of dialogue we need to have is to actually address that to say, "Well, how can gender balance and gender equality be good for all? You know, what are the things about it that actually do benefit men, and how do we look at it from the perspective that, you know, if we're saying that everyone competes and the best person is successful?" and we de-bias our systems and structures and processes, then you really know that if you've got the job you really achieved, and that's a worthwhile achievement. And, and what that takes is you know, open conversation and transparency and willingness to step into some pretty tough conversations about when someone feels that if a woman wins, men lose, zero-sum game kind of perspective. That's where I think we'll have trouble and backlash if that's not handled. And and that's a tough spot for companies and organizations to go.
0: Oh, and I think that, that, that to me that debate, if you will, is one of the trickiest ones. And I I talked to um, a former colleague of mine, Brenda Allen, about this. And she pointed out, she said, when, she said, typically, you know, we're talking in generalizations, when women compete, they're competing, but it's like, it's it's collaborative. So it's like, it's not a, I win, you lose. It's like, hey, if, if I win, you could win as well. And whereas when men tend to compete, it's definitely, I win, you lose. So women look at this and go, so we could actually, this could actually be great for us. Men look at it and go, this might be terrible.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. And so I think even just like that kind of ingrained thinking yeah. is going to be tough to overcome. I'm interested as, as well. Like I think there's a, there's a huge, there's a role for men to play in the conversation. And at at the at the right time. I think about your programs, I think about some of the programs that I was uh, working on when I was at the Humphrey group around women's leadership and typically it's behind closed doors. So I really only got exposure to our women's programs through kind of in-company sessions where we'd talk about them and, or I would go and be talking to clients about potentially bringing in a program like taking stage or succeeding on stage. Yet I and part of the reason that this podcast exists is I believe there's a role for men to be involved in the conversation. I just don't really know how or where that happens, but there's something. So what are you seeing out there, or what's Minerva doing to to bring men into the conversation
1: yeah. without
0: totally alienating women and, and ignoring the fact that there's huge systematic
1: bias? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. I can't go to anything uh, really in the city or elsewhere, where the comment isn't made, oh, it's nice to have, you know, five men in the room, and oh, how do we engage more men? This is sort of the the constant refrain, how do we engage men, how do we engage men? I think men want to be engaged, and and men that I've talked to are really on side and really on board and and lots of belief and and support, um, maybe not knowing always how and where they fit into the conversation and sort of finding that entry point. So I think it's invitations in and curiosity. I do think that, you know, women sharing experience and and those kind of things, you you have to build the trust and relationship with someone too to truly engage in a conversation that's going to be meaningful and and result in both people learning. So there has to be openness on both sides to understand the other's point of view. So I think if someone's not ready for that, either on whichever side, it's not going to be that fruitful of a conversation. I think sort of the tangible thing. So I think, you know, men, men can also be great problem solvers. And, and we know where men's involvement can have huge impact, especially on women in their careers, as mentors, as sponsors. Um, so I, I think there's also um, showing how and, and creating opportunity and space, you know, opportunity for men to play those kind of roles where they uh, can influence and and play a positive role. I think there's lots of willingness. I think there's some fear around Me Too, and I've certainly heard that there's some backing off of, you know, relationships and one-on-ones with women out of fear. And I really think the question in that is like, well, let's explore that fear. Like, what's that about? We're constantly talking about that at Minerva, and, and you know, we're in our 20 years, we're starting forward on strategic planning. There's there's also that dialogue around. We've had people say to us, "Oh, well, you need to do this program for men," <laughs> and, and so it, it is also sort of thinking about, yeah, what what's the spot and what's the place? And a couple of things we're trying to do is, um, we engage CEOs on this diversity pledge. So the majority of of those individuals are men. So trying to find ways for them to show leadership, to engage other leadership, to um, you know be, be those role models as this is this is the way forward. This is this is a modern construct. But I truly think a lot of it has to do with just forming the relationships, building the relationships, and then sharing experiences. I think there's also a lot of men who are also uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, men must be X, Y, and Z and always show up in certain ways and not always be fearless and never show emotion and, you know, always be strong and have the answer. And, you know, I think we can break down some of those gender stereotypes that aren't good for any of us.
0: That, yeah, I mean, that's that's a really, that feels like a really true statement. I mean, I work with a lot of men and I'm, you know, part of men's work and men's groups and... Some of the things that, you know, I believe you talk about in your programs and I heard about at the Humphrey group are things like the concept of negative self-talk mm-hmm. or the crow, you know, the Cheryl Sandberg. Mm-hmm. It's like there's every man I've met is dealing with the same thing. I don't know if it's the same as the way women deal with it. I sense it's a very similar voice saying, Oh, don't do that. But it might just be from a different socialization. I don't know. I'm not sure how many men are ready to be that vulnerable about Mm -hmm. it. Does it mean that you have to break down and cry every meeting? No, it does not. But there's a range that men are comfortable operating in. and It's generally very narrow. And I know that because I've operated in it for years and realized how narrow it was and you start to expand it. And that's what people really want. (laughs) When you look at the McKinsey study, um, you know, from 2017, like it's, pretty clear people want to feel connected to their leaders they want people that are collaborative that are not you know like the terminator or you know robocop so i think there's room yeah there's room for men to be involved there's room for some shared experience and there's room for some separation because there's also some very different experience going on yeah it's a, but it's a bit like the you know in in high school when they separate the girls and boys and they talk about sex education well there's a time where they're going to get back together <laughs> And I think that's the part that I see is, as we need in, in terms of um, on the corporate side, is allowing space for men to be involved in a way that, that makes sense, honors the reality for women, especially if there's power dynamics. It's like, oh, you bring in a whole bunch of CEOs and how was your women's leadership session? It's like, well, I don't really want to talk about that because there's a power dynamic now too. You've got gender and power. Um, so when you, I, I want to dig in a little bit on the the pledge piece. So you have executives who are, and a lot of them are men, who are making the pledge around gender equality. When it comes to modeling the behavior and then reinforcing it like in inside those companies, where do you think it falls down?
1: I think it can fall down in lots of places. Um, you know, any new initiative that requires people to change behavior is a challenge right? Work is busy, high demands, we're all working hard, we all have you know, our lives outside of work and so I think sometimes the execution of a change management initiative or a culture change initiative people don't understand it or they don't see themselves in it. So I think communication is one of the biggest. I think it's really important. Uh, What we hear from employees of the companies or CEOs have signed when they say oh our CEO talks about this all the time or he mentions the pledge. The more that um, the senior leader, the CEO is emphasizing, this is a critical business issue and we're invested in this and we're staying the course on this. Then people start to say, okay, this is not going away. It's part of uh, what's coming forward. I think sometimes it's complex. And so I think if we're relying on unconscious bias training and hoping that people will, you know, do better, we're not going to get there. I think you have to sincerely look at well, what are the systems and structures in our starting with HR? How do we write a job description? How do we do interviewing? Um, how do we choose promotions? How do we do raises? And you know, we had a we had a breakfast series podcast and John Mulledyano spoke and he said, you know, one of the things he did uh, in his former company, and and very strong commitment to radical transparency. So the more transparent and clear you are about, this is how it works, this is how we decide, this is you know, how we pay people, this is how things move along, um, the better off, because you will be able to set that high bar, you'll allow people to compete, you, you de-bias the systems and processes as much as you can, and then you, then you offer the transparency to say, and this is how the process went, and then, and then you start to make strides. But you know, that is a lot of um, risk, as you said, you know, our environments and corporate environments don't always encourage Vulnerability, risk, uh, errors, mistakes, openness—for um, lots of reasons.
0: I love the that idea of that radical transparency because I had an experience that where I, I had applied on a, a high-profile job in a in a previous company. It was re, you know reporting directly into an executive, and I made it to the final round, and I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And this woman who's wonderfully talented got the job. The executive phoned me and said, here's what she had that you didn't. And it was helpful. Yeah. And then it didn't go well, because a, a director in my group came to me, in essence, implied, oh, well, there's this gender thing going on. You would have got the gig in, in, a, in a way to make me feel better, which was, and I didn't really know how to deal with it at that point. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, is that true? Like I didn't, I didn't. It didn't feel like it was true. This, this, it was an engineering organization. This woman was an engineer. I am not. <laughs> it made a lot of sense, um, and so it was is interesting. But I think when I think about the gap between the CEO pledging that this is a big thing, and then the individual behaviors that, it, especially that men engage in, in in the workplace, I think there's there that's a, a, where a lot of the noise happens, where you get the broken telephone. Um, and my experience then was, it was a bit tainted Mm, where I'm like, Oh, well, that's weird. And now I reflect back and go, this guy was trying to help me and make me feel better, but not exactly the right move. to be
1: honest, if that had been said in a context where the successful candidate heard it, it would have been tainted for her too, because she would have felt like, Oh, you know, did that take something away from my performance? And from there, there there's many women who feel that way about quotas and targets they're against them because they feel like, well, I want to compete on, an, on, on a level playing field. And yet, I would argue that, you know, all things being the same, if you have two candidates who can do the job, and if you have a if you have a diversity gap, whether that's gender or something else, the person with the difference actually has the competitive advantage because they're bringing that element of diversity. So I think if you're trying to solve a gap and you're trying to solve a diversity issue, that is something that should come into play. And, and then if you've solved that and, and there's you know, the systems and supports to allow for equal opportunity and equal progression and, and competition and the radical transparency and those kind of things, you know, then, then it's not as much of a factor.
0: That's a good point. It's like if you've got two candidates, regardless of where the diversity falls, whether it's gender or otherwise, mm-hmm. the leg up is the person that's in the minority, because yeah. they're going to bring a different voice to the conversation. And I think that's that's part of where the conversation is important. Like, these are the kinds of things, I think, that need to be talked about a little more. We're fearful of it. We're fearful of talking a little bit about the the pay gap. It's like, well, you know, is that really We don't talk about money very often in our society. But these are the things, as you said, to radical transparency, I think are going to give people a little more comfort, at least in knowing, oh, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Even with pay gap, even the transparency of, uh, including in your in your hiring process, that you know negotiations expected, because that also gives all candidates the opportunity to say, oh, okay, how am I going to negotiate? There's an invitation, or there is no negotiation. The offer is the offer, right? Yeah. So the transparency around how does it work behind the scenes also creates the opportunity for everyone to mitigate that pay gap.
0: Well, and that the, pay, the you know the pay gap one is is a it's, a, it's it remains a big issue because it's still there, it's still pervasive.
1: And my experience of that, in, in talking to employers, there's a great story of a, a very successful um, BC entrepreneur, and she told a story about hiring an engineering position in the firm and, and sort of having two men and a, women, a woman, and the woman, you know, in terms of, you know, their experience and their level of um, time on the job and credentialing was pr- pretty consistent. Um, she had slightly better references, she had slightly more publications or something, I can't remember exactly, but sort of had a slight edge, but really on paper, all could do the job, all were the same, and and she said, I never would have believed it, and and not something intentionally would be perpetuated in the organization, but, you know, the the first fellow was, you know, a single guy, and he sort of negotiated, said, well, this would be what I'd be asking for, and negotiated a, you know, 15% increase over his current salary, the other guy said, this is my current salary, and negotiated 10% over his next salary, and and when it came to the woman, she said, well, this is what I'm making now, it was already lower than the two men by about, you know, $10,000, uh, I'd be really happy to stay the same. And wow. she said, I never would have believed it, but she said, I saw with my own eyes in these three candidates how negotiation and, you know, the confidence to negotiate or the skill of negotiation or the willingness to ask or to advocate for yourself, how... You know, she already was starting behind at the same level and same experience and um, she was already starting behind and then she was putting herself further behind. So I think pay gap isn't always with intention. It's I don't think I don't think there's employers behind closed doors saying let's figure out how to, you know, no keep no. the women down or
0: no, no, I get I advantage
1: mean, in these ways. I think it just I, happens.
0: And a lot of it as you said, I mean it's 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 built in, it's structural or it's bias related. So when you, when you run your programs I went through some of the agendas and some of the things, and, you know, I've, and having worked and taking the stage, some of the things you talk about are the, the challenges in, in working in, in sort of masculine-dominant organizations. And we've touched on it a bit, but what, when you engage in these conversations with women, what are you still hearing about that's not necessarily the worst examples, but things that are maybe small things that add up that whether they're, that men are doing intentionally or not, but that they're engaging it in the workplace. And I really want to bring this out for my listeners to understand. These are the kinds of behaviors that they might seem innocuous, mm-hmm. but they're things that create a problematic culture, especially for women.
1: The kind of things we hear a lot are uh, airtime in meetings, credit for ideas in meetings. So that does happen a lot where Still. someone will say something and then it's repeated uh by a man, and then that's when the when the idea gets attention, interruptions in meetings. So I think in general, one of one of the tips and one of the uh, suggestions I heard at an unconscious bias event was really when you're in a meeting, paying attention, who's not talking, who hasn't said anything, you know, roughly how 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 often and how long are people speaking for, and starting to like once you start to notice, you can't stop noticing, right? And you start to be <laughs> awareness. So I think, you know, time in meetings, asking questions if someone's quiet, inviting them in. Um, asking for a difference opinion, you know, we're all in agreement here, there must be some bias, what are we missing, can someone play the critical uh, role, can someone be the devil's advocate. I think there's still a perception, I think in certain industries, I think male dominated can, women can often feel like they're still an outsider. So I hear this lot from women in tech, and there may not be anything overt happening, so no, you know, immediate discrimination, harassment, polite, respectful, but walk into a room and a conversation stops. And that's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's not even about a hostile culture, it's just the nuances of, you know, I don't belong.
0: It is nuance though. I mean, in, in my work, you know, I work with teams and individuals, I I mean, I'm experiencing and hearing less. Not that people are always coming to me with, you mm-hmm. know, challenges around gender, but I'm hearing less of the overt mm-hmm. and much more of the nuance. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if if we as men always understand. Like oh I didn't really realize like you just gave me an example I'm like I never I'd never really thought about that mm-hmm. um, but it's 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 an important one mm-hmm. you know in the in the in that now famous Gillette ad there's the scene where there's the you know the man in the boardroom says I think what she was trying to say mm-hmm. is so now you know millions of people now know oh you that's not a thing you should be doing
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, what el- what are what about things you're hearing from women that are more around like the cultural nuance or undertone so things are experiencing a little bit like the you know things get hushed or i'm noticing this but Mm -hmm. it's or a feeling that they're having
1: i think there's some expectations around you know roles because of gender so i do hear about women who complain about i'm always expected to take the notes or i'm you know i'm the one who brings the coffee or i'm the one who organizes the social events and uh You know, it's interesting because that that work is not valued in a workplace. So those that step up to organize the office parties and the Christmas parties and the social gatherings, that isn't valued in the same way that working extra hours on a client file is valued. And so I think there's a detriment to being the person in the workplace who's always keeping things going and um, supporting those social pieces that are expected and and not having, you know, men stab up to do some of those things as well. So I, yeah, I hear funny stories and, and women find their own ways around that in terms of saying, well, I, I got the coffee last time, it's your turn or, yeah. you know, just sort of stepping in. So I don't, I don't think they're huge issues and I don't think necessarily that, you know, there's a lot of um, passivity around trying to change that. And I also think, you know, attitudes and beliefs are changing rapidly and expectations of the workplace. And I think, you know, the millennials are the largest generation in the workplace and, you know, they're shaping and changing norms left, right and center about, how things go and and what it should be. So I I think that those things are always changing.
0: Those kind of things just feel weird now for, Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly in the way that, in the way I was brought up. I'll, I do, you know, work in executive coaching. So I'll often go and it it all, it feels weird Mm -hmm. to me when there's someone who's like, oh, can I go get you a coffee? I'm like, well, sure. If where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the Starbucks run. And it's Mm -hmm. like, is this something you do all the time? Yeah. Like, that doesn't seem like it. we have, there's an app for that. Like, we don't, I mean, you're a wonderful person, but your skills are far better used somewhere else. And it's, it, it It can, it almost gets a little bit uncomfortable, Yeah. Um, which I think is a, is a good thing in some ways. But I'm wondering, is it, is it the role of men to step in and lead more of the, let's say, social, creative, typically things that we would see as, you know, more feminine roles in an organization, like planning the parties or baby showers? Or is it the role of women to, to step away from that? Or is it both? Like, how does that work?
1: I mean, I think, I mean, I've always worked in smaller organizations, so it's easier to say, well, what does the team value and think is important? And then how do we get that done, right? So who who, and how can we make these things happen? And I, I think there still will be people on the team who maybe you know, you know, maybe female and really enjoy those things and still step up to do it. And that, right. that might be the best thing and the way that it should go. I think it's anytime there's that underlying assumption or belief that it should be a certain way or the questions aren't asked or it's not openly talked about or if I feel that I'm being taken advantage of because I take the minutes at every meeting and I don't want to, that I have free space to use my voice and influence a different outcome. So I think, you know, I think those are the things I would look for is it's not whose role is it and who should do it and how should we reorchestrate it. It's more, you know, do people feel safe enough in the space to say... Wait a minute! I don't think this is fair. Or you know what? You've done all the presenting to clients, and I want an opportunity to present to clients. So I'd like to be able to do the next one. That you know, the voice and the advocacy and the ability to influence is present. And I think if that's true, and you've created a culture where that exists, then those things will work.
0: I like that. Um, it's a good piece of wisdom to to say, hey, there's it's not really a you know a rule set around here. Yeah. And
1: I think as a leader, you check in. So I, I notice you're always taking the meeting minutes. I notice you're always organizing the parties. Are you enjoying that? Is it fulfilling for you? And then recognizing if that's a value you hold as a leader, that those things happen in your organization, then treat that as extra work that that person's doing to contribute to workplace culture that's a positive and reflects on their performance reviews and reflects, you know, in their compensation and reflects in all those kind of ways that you truly do put a value on it, not, oh, well, that's the housekeeping of the office. Thanks, yeah. buddy, for doing it. Right. right? Thanks for putting what's, what's in your the extra dollar time. value on that. Yeah. If those are extra hours and things. And I think that's the conversation. No different than how do we value the at home work that men and women do in that extra work. Uh, it's the same kind of thing.
0: Right. right, it's the same. It's it's not it's not compensated with money necessarily or promotion, but it's definitely has a value. hmm I mean, it contributes to culture. That's interesting. So when you're when you're working with with women, whether it's inside Minerva or in in your programs, how do you instill that? You talk about values-based leadership. And I just want to bring us back to that because I think it's really important, and I think it's a a bit of a misunderstood topic. Mm -hmm. I first heard about it when I worked uh, at BC Hydro because a mentor of mine talked about um, Bev Van Ruven. Who at the time was, I think, interim, no, she wasn't interim CEO, she was executive in charge of customer care. And she said, this is a woman who is a values-based leader. And I was, you kind of watch her and you're like, oh yeah, like, she doesn't really give a shit about what other people are thinking. She's still highly respectful, but she, she knows what she believes in and she acts from there. How do you instill that in women, especially where you said they don't have, they don't always have positive female role models in leadership?
1: Well, values are very personal, and we all have them. And you know, they, the focus of values may change, but really values you know, sort of develop and, and stay with you. And so to me, it's actually about how do you connect to your values, and how do you create time and space and pause and reflection to connect with those values, and, and not just think, well, what are those words, but what do those words mean, and how do I live them? If I value health, where is my time and money evidence that I value health? You know, am I exercising? am I going to the gym? Do I go for walks? Am I you know am I living a healthy lifestyle? So where's the where's the action that supports that being a lived value? And that's what we do in our programs. We spend probably half of our women's leadership program really doing a lot of self work. We look at values. We do a number of different exercises to, talk about values, identify values, get clear on values. And the women do a lot of reflection, writing, and reading. And we have some women, we have this one graduate from our program, she took it years ago, every notebook she opens, any, any fresh notebook she starts for her work, she writes her values and her strengths at the front of the notebook. You know, just sort of has her clarity of like, this is who I am and this is what I'm about, and carries it with her just at the forefront. And so I think it's the time and space. And I, I mean, I worked in career development for a long time, and the foundation of career decision making is understanding your values, your skills, your interests, and your, and your preferences. This is the same thing we do in leadership development. Who are you? What are you about? And so I think for us, it's the act of giving time and space to figure out what are those values? How do I live them? How do they show up in my life, and my work? And when people say, well, do you mean my values at home or my values at work? That's always a really interesting conversation because why are they different? It shouldn't be different, and so if you're if you're acting in different ways, behaving in different ways depending on the environment, which of those environments is sort of the congruent, meaningful, you know, connection to heart that you have? And so I think once, honestly, I say like once we do that work in our in our women's leadership program, the confidence soars from there because it's like, ah, this is who I am. And once you, you, you've sort of had the time to grapple with it and make sense of it and find your language around it, whatever the however you name and frame your values, uh, that's who I am. That's what I care about. That's what's most important to me. And then how do I center myself and my life around those things? And if you can find how to be authentic with an organization where you find that match, where you know you can be true to your values and true to the values of the company, that's you know that's the ideal and that's a great scenario where you can find. The harmony in that.
0: I think that's a good point uh, to close on because it's a huge. I think that's that's an area of of common challenge for men and for women. Is not how do you how do you create or really not create? How do you understand what your values are and live them seamlessly, so that you don't feel like you have to put on the executive mask or the man mask as we often talk about for men when you go into work versus being at home. Or that you don't, you know, treat your kids terribly like you do at people at work or vice versa, like it's a, these are common challenges. And I wonder if that's a place for part of this conversation around it's we, where that starts. I have learned a ton from you just being in this interview. This conversation has helped me learn a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for your time and I'm really grateful that Minerva has a leader like you to take them through year 20 and and well beyond. Uh, You're really an embodiment of what that conversation is we just talked about around showing up, values-based, being consistent. And so I'd just like to say thank you on behalf of my listeners. Uh, Where can people go to find out more about Minerva and your programs um, and and about you?
1: Yeah, so we have a website, minervabc.ca and then our work uh, with organizations on the pledge can be found at faceofleadership.ca. Uh, my bio is on there. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, uh, as it says on my bio, I always accept an informational interview or a request for a coffee. Having been a career counselor, I'm always delighted to meet people and chat with people and uh, make connections. So thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation too. All thank right. you.
0: Thank you. All right, that is a wrap on episode number seven of the Men at Work podcast. It's a great conversation with Tina. Glad we got to dig a little deeper below the surface around these gender equality issues and talk a little bit more about how men can play a role in supporting women in leadership in all facets of life. So if you like this podcast, please hit subscribe and give me a rating. It really helps me out and helps build the profile of this podcast. I'll talk to you all for episode number eight next week.